Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, where you can master the lessons of world spirituality and become the master of your reality. I have a new introductory free course up on magic.me. It's called Why Magic Start Here, and it is the first thing you will see if you go to the magic.me site, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. In this class, I describe what magic is, how to start learning it, and most importantly, why you should. Again, it's a free, I think, 25-minute introductory session. It's really awesome. It includes a free meditation if you haven't already got it. There's tons of goodies in there. Check it out. So magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, and the class is called Why Magic Start Here. All you have to do is click the free course button, sign up for it, and it's all yours. All right, looking forward to seeing you in class. Our episode today is spicy, very spicy. We are talking to John Zerzin, who is an American anarchist and primitivist eco-philosopher and author. Here's what his Wikipedia bio says about him. Zerzin's work criticizes agricultural civilization as inherently oppressive and advocates drawing upon the ways of life of hunter-gatherers as an inspiration for what a free society should look like. Subjects of his criticism include domestication, language, symbolic thought, such as mathematics and art, and the concept of time. He has a new book out, uh, which well came out fairly recently, but since everything is one long moment post-2020, I count it as just out. It's called When We Are Human, Notes from the Age of Pandemics, and it is published by the much-beloved, controversial publisher Feral House, for whom I once worked. Here's the description of the book. These are dark and darkening times, challenging us to look deeper to grasp the roots and dynamics of the looming civilizational crisis. Chronic illness of the planet calls for radically new thinking if there is to be any hope of renewal. When We Are Human offers thought at a necessary and primal level. All previous civilizations have failed, and now there's just one global civilization, which is starkly, grandly failing. To deny or avoid this fact is to remain in the sphere of the superficial, the irrelevant. The physical environment is reaching the catastrophe stage as the seas warm, rise, acidify, and fill with plastics. Icebergs ahead and floating past beachgoers idly watching the planet die. So much is failing, so much is interrelated in the technosphere of ever greater dependence and estrangement. Social existence, now strangely isolated, is beset by mass shootings, rising suicide rates, slipping longevity, loneliness, anxiety, and the maddening stream of lies and concocted politics. Zerzin trains his passionate focus on several fields of discourse. Anthropology, history, philosophy, technology, psychology, and the spiritual. Points of light that become a kaleidoscope refracting new insights and contributing an overall picture of late civilization. All right, this was an intense interview. Zerzin is an intense dude, and he wrote an intense book. I provide it to you as food for thought. All right, I hope you enjoy this interview. It is, if nothing else, extremely thought-provoking. All right, here's John Zerzin. So I, I really, really enjoyed your book. I, I, I just finished it. 
There's so much in there to talk about. I feel like we could do a podcast on every single essay in there. So it's kind of all over the map. But everything's great though, and 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 challenging and 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 needed. And so I've done my best to try and touch on the major points. But I just wanted to start off. So for listeners who may not be familiar with with your work, I've I've been aware of your work for I think twenty years. But uh, for listeners who are not familiar with your work. Can you maybe, can you just summarize perhaps kind of the anti-civilization? Well, we're seeing it uh, crumble on a global basis, I would say, and it's uh, it puts the topic on the table. And if being anti-authoritarian or anarchist means uh, trying to do something about the different forms of domination, uh, us have come to the conclusion that it really stems from domestication, it promptly turns into civilizations and starts us on this road um, to be anti-civilization. Well, for example, let me refer to a very important work, Joseph Tainter's The Collapse of Complex Societies. And he basically says, well, uh, they all tend to reach civilizations, that is, they tend to reach the point past the carrying capacity the parasite consumes the host. End of story. And it's pretty much uh, a universal story. And now uh, we're getting to the place where it's, to me, it's kind of hard to avoid that conclusion that, that that's the real problem. And all of these reform gestures and kind of politics as usual have really nothing to do with the crisis uh, at every level in every area. Uh, there's no there's no part of it that's that isn't failing. I mean, it's I don't know where you'd find somebody who resists uh, that uh, conclusion. So it's uh, <clears throat> slowly coming into view, and in the anarchist milieu, I think we've seen a shift from red anarchism to green anarchy, or anarcho-primitivism, or anti-civ anarchy, or whatever you want to call it. It's it's really the same thing. How how long have you been noticing that shift? Is that in response to the pandemic, or has that been going on longer? Well, I think it's been going on in a lot of ways. For example, I've been noticing the decline of postmodernism, which really had its heyday in the '90s, but you know, it's had a very, to me, a very negative influence. Uh, you know, if you think that meaning or truth is not stable, it's indeterminate, it's shifting. You know who's to say what's up you know there's that's that's just debilitating and now there's actual resist there's uh rejection uh, explicit rejection of that whole outlook which really did uh, affect the cultural in a big way i'm afraid so i think we're getting away from that to be not so afraid of of a of an overview of a foundationalist uh approach that doesn't uh, hide from uh, what's needed. You know, what's, for example, origins, that was banned by postmodernism. You, you did not go there. Uh, you didn't go, you didn't want to have an overview because the totality, as it was said, is totalitarian. What do you mean by, by, by well, origins? It's, it's, it's an authoritarian impulse. To, to want to grasp the whole. And that was really aimed at Marxism. 
you know, in the seventies and eighties, which is valid in that sense. I mean, I'm, because I was a Marxist, I'm not now, but that's, that's a healthy response to that. But if you throw out everything else, throw out the baby with the bathwater and you're, then you're just stuck. You don't have any way to see what's going on as fundamental as that is. There you go. There, you're pretty much hobbled from the start. If you are affected by postmodernism, of course, that's a very possibly unfair thumbnail version of postmodernism, but I think it gets to the core of it. It's always seemed to me, yeah, and I want to touch on later um, trends. I, there, some of these seem to be converging across the political spectrum, but it has always seemed to me that postmodernism really historically has to come out of the post-World War II period because it, it just seems to me like a like a an immune response to, to the totalitarian narratives and the tendency towards totalitarian mass narratives of, of both Marxism and fascism, obviously. But mm-hmm. it seems to me that everyone is now chafing at that because for the very simple reason, well, there's a lot of reasons, but the reason that I chafe at it is there's just no way to deal with the ecological crisis without some type of totalizing worldview or, or overview. Yeah. Agreed. So why don't I want to take this back? So the thing that has always stayed with me from your work is the, you talk so much about the historical moment where people were moved out of agriculture, out of the family units and into the factories. And you talk a lot about in this book, uh, like I've always remembered, I think it was an essay that you wrote about people attacking clocks in city squares because the the imposition of of the, the, you know the conquest of time, the imposition of clocked time as a way of keeping people in factories. That's stayed with me since college. Actually, I think about that a lot. Um, but you talk a lot about the enclosure enclosure in this book and about how critical of a moment um, this was. And you even talk about it as, you know, part of the ongoing domestication of humans, which I think is a great phrase. Um, and, and that's really, that's really fascinating to me. So I'm wondering if you can talk about what that moment was and kind of why enclosure was what it was, why it was such a huge deal and what the war over it was, because I don't think people have any conception of kind of the history of rebellion against it. Well, it was a very long running, uh, effort or battle uh that's why i wanted to explore it because it you know you hear about that people losing the commons the communal sense of the land to various degrees and how that's extinguished and privatized uh it did take an awfully long time uh i learned a lot researching that you know wasn't i mean the industrial revolution the factory system came in rather quickly uh, relative to the enclosure movement, but, uh, that was certainly part of the background to it. This this long, uh, sometimes unperceived, but sometimes very acutely felt that people uh, in communities lost that communal aspect uh, on the land. You know that was. So, and, uh, so not to interrupt, but I think just just for the the audience. So, am I correct that enclosure is that was the beginning of of basically fencing off private land and taking it right, out of the private right. commons for, in for individual specifically okay. Talking about uh, the uh, the story of that in England, 
specifically and how that was a part of the coming of industrialism. And but it was a long, slow deal, and, and it was accomplished in various means. Uh, finally, it became law. It, it wasn't originally. It was often more battle with the local landlord, uh, local vested interest, but it eventually became a matter of uh, parliamentary decrees and so forth, that, which was just all of these things come together to... to uh, isolate people more and to make it, uh, you know, a matter of private property rather than a community-wide uh, culture. So what was what would you say the effect of that was on people's consciousness, if I can use a broad term like that? I mean, it, it just seems like being torn away from everything which made us human, um, well, being torn away from the land in the case of enclosure, but then being you know, herded into factories. Yeah, you know, that's that's still going on. That's what I see every day, you know, including mass shootings. When community is gone, and I contend that uh, mass society means there is no community anymore. It's largely a fiction. It's, it's employed by developers or politicians, but where is it? That's why you have all these pathological developments, and it starts... Uh, well, in the case of the English uh, story with enclosure, it, it goes way back. It's a gradual thing. And, you know, it's sort of like division of labor, which is, of course, even more basic uh, social institution. It, it can it can move slowly, but it really does involve everything, as I think you imply. The, the whole basis of social existence or culture, uh, it begins to be defined at that level. You know, that's... You know, in fact, there was a column today in the New York Times by David Brooks <laughs> about the mass shootings. Maybe you saw that. No, I haven't. He, he basically says these these shooters, young male shooters, uh, for the most part, it, they're not mostly mentally ill. There's no diagnosed uh, mental illness. But what it is is isolation. People become indifferent to each other, and they're separated from from community. He doesn't actually work, use the word community, but he's, I think it's just putting in slightly different words. Uh, that's what you get. And it's gone. And now we have every kind of uh, horrible development. That's probably the most striking. The mass shootings go on almost every day now. It's, yeah. it's unbelievable. Yeah. Sometimes multiple but times a day. nobody's going to talk about it. You know, yeah, you talk about it only superficially. You mentioned in the book, you ask, you know, n nobody, nobody, ask the question of what kind of society would produce this. And I think one of the interesting things about that people are getting about mass shooters also now, I was reading, I believe it was a somebody who researches them, a security researcher for the FBI, or something like that, was saying, making the really clear point of, you know, look, th this is not ideological. People are always coming, coming out and saying, oh, this is white supremacy. This is, there's some ideological drive behind this. Or before that, it was you know, radical Islamic terror or whatever people were very quick to blame things on. But now she says it's, it's about aesthetics. It's not about ideology. It's about kind of online communities that just aesthetically create this idea of mass shooting for its own sake. Like there's almost kind of a uniform now in, in a, a way that um, these young men approach it, but it's completely nihilistic, but it, in a, in, but it's performative, I think in a social media kind of way. 
rather than being, you know, there's no manifesto necessarily. There's not an ideological statement, although there, there are in, in many cases. Yeah. In some cases. So you mentioned, um, the, so talking about the moment where people were taking out of, taken out of the factories, or excuse me, not taken out of the factories, taken out of the home and the, uh, from the land and put into factories. One of the things that has been occurring to me during the pandemic is that in, to some extent, there's a, an, a weird reversal of that process happening right now. And as people have been removed from the office and put back in their homes for however mm-hmm. long that lasts. And there's bad things about that, but also I think exciting things about it. But it, it struck me almost at the, in, during 2020, during the initial social lockdown, it's like, this is, this is almost like a, a D D and not deindustrialization, but it's certainly it's going to make urban centers much less important or centralization of labor in offices or factories much less important it seems i don't know if you if if you have thoughts on that interesting point yeah well this might be uh accompanied by a (coughs) by a rethinking of work the value of work the role of work i mean there's lots of stuff written about the so-called great resignation and I think even this morning, it was another sort of surprise how many people are resisting the workforce, you know, in general, whether it's uh, at home or being, you know, in some cases, forced to go back into the office. There may be a rethinking as if this keeps on, if this is not just a passing, uh, maybe a blip of resistance of some kind, but more that people are you do see some signs of it in terms of what's been written, people reassessing, what am I doing with my life? It's a pretty fundamental question. Am I, I spend my whole life working and what's that about against the backdrop of everything going south? I mean, everything's, there's no part of it. It isn't crumbling and, and uh, scary. So it's, you know, it's, I don't think it's a surprise that people may be, are trying to reassess that too, you know, something as basic as that. Yeah, I think that all of the data definitely shows that certainly with the millennial generation, um, that meaning meaningfulness of work is way more important than it ever has been for any prior generation and, and much more than even finances and things like that. And that it just like, if there's not a sense of meaningfulness of work, uh, it, I mean, it's just like what you're saying. It's like be, with the b- backdrop of everything, uh, you know, how, how can you just go and, you know, make uh, sell, sell cars or something like that? So uh-huh. it, it seems like that reevaluation of work is, is, is perhaps long in coming. So one thing that I want to talk about as well is you talk about the enlightenment a lot in this book and the enlight, not just the enlightenment, being kind of the source of a lot of our woes but in fact that perhaps we are still in the enlightenment uh, and and that that faustian kind of as as spengler put out pointed out that faustian Mm -hmm. imperialist drive to conquer everything and and commodify everything is really why we're in this mess so this is interesting for me because this is during during the trump period that became such a talking point on the right uh, and we had either kind of mainstream conservative pundits coming out of the woodwork to defend and uphold 
you know, what they perceive to be enlightenment ideas from, you know, the threat of wokeism or, or something like that. Or, you know, then you have the more extreme right as reflected in Steve Bannon and people like that, like the traditionalist or radical Catholic side, where they're coming out with a total critique of the enlightenment. And they're saying, we need to go back to re and reject it completely. Um, so you touch, I think you touch upon a global backlash against the enlightenment in the book. But this was just such a massive part of the Trump era. And I think it's suddenly so more, it's so much more pertinent after the overthrow of, or the overturning of Roe v. Wade, particularly because most of the, or all of the Supreme Court justices responsible for that were largely put there by Vatican money. Um, and so I, I think you quote, it's either Marx or Freud in the book. You talk about, you can often learn a lot about civilization's problems from its reactionaries. So I wonder if you've picked up on this anti-enlightenment or pro-enlightenment talking point on the right and what if if you have thoughts on that um not really i mean i think it's uh i've looked at it as a deeper uh problem i mean you know you can go back to speaking of the enlightenment to reference shakespeare's brave new world science and technology is going to create a perfect world well um, not exactly. <laughs> it's, it's just really, I think it's fairly easy to see that just is the reverse of what's really going on in terms of, again, isolation and, and the absence of community. I mean, people, and I mean, for example, the technology thing, that's very, very central to my work. <clears throat> Uh, it's going to connect everybody. We're all connected now. Never been so isolated. That's again. That's the point of the mass shootings phenomenon, among other things to talk about. But you know, it's just—it's now. It's just a series of rather massive lies. Enlightenment, and you know, the other part, key enlightenment thing, uh, superstition, intolerance will be gone. <clears throat> well, <laughs> sorry about that. That's uh, obviously not happening uh, in the in the modern world, and I mean, there's a lot to it. But it's it's easy to see. Well, what is the result? We have these claims, these promises, <clears throat> in which now are taken up. To me, not so much by political partisans, but by the technology itself. It makes the claims. It makes the decisions. It decides what uh, what's on offer. Because I think, actually, uh, contrary to your uh, questions, it's uh, it's really more a matter of any political ideology is less important. Uh, I think as we go along, it's it really is to reify the thing uh, totally here. But it's the technology speaking. It's not political voices. As most importantly, I mean, I'm not. I don't, uh, I think you're correct and that these different players have different parts of this, but, you know, at base, I think it really is, well, you know, the Unabomber was right. As we get yeah. more and more technological in society, more and more defined by that, that's the, that's the ballgame. That's what, uh, you know, calls the tune. Yeah, I, I, I think 
yeah, Ted Kaczynski really made that point very clearly. It's just everything's downstream of technology, and I can't really argue with that. I think that's more clear now, certainly, than it was in the early 90s in the fact that we are all, you know, we've all essentially been driven insane by algorithms. And uh, I, don't right. know if, I don't know if you followed the recent Facebook whistleblower, but one of the things that she said about how the what's going on inside Facebook is that they're finding that even politicians are because the algorithm favors further and further polarization uh, so that people share posts now they're now seeing politicians in in Europe and across the world having to conform to more and more extreme and polarized positions because their constituencies are going that way because they're being pushed by the algorithms so just to underline your point there it, it definitely seems like you know even like the people supposedly in running the show are also downstream of these algorithms and it seems that these companies themselves mm -hmm. are downstream of these algorithms um which is obviously uh i think really apparent to a lot of people now um i want to so. yeah. yeah i hope so too and i don't necessarily know what the other than a total, you know, basically the point you make, which is an absolute rejection of all of it. I don't know what the answer to that is. Um, but you, you talk a lot about trans, you know, this kind of like, you call it the Kurzweil delusion <laughs> uh, uh, in the book. And you talk about this kind of like transhumanism and just the insanity of that. This kind of like teleological view of like, well, the technology will fix it all in the end. And you, you also point out, you know, the, I, the more that technology dominates society, the more fear of death that people have in response to the kind of transhumanist drive for immortality. So mm -hmm. I'm really curious. I, I'm curious about your thoughts. You also quote, you, you quote Adorno, the computer is the bankruptcy position of consciousness, which I thought was great. I haven't heard that before, but I'm curious about your thoughts about AI. You mentioned the kind of, you know, insanity of people like Ray Kurzweil Henry Kissinger, uh, Yuva Harari, I think that's how his name is, Yuva Noah Harari, uh, and, and even, um, you know, Donna, Donna Haraway, which is, I think, a sacred cow for many people. Um, oh, yes. But, the cyborg. Yeah. yeah, I actually studied under her, and I, I took courses from her in, at UC Santa Cruz. But, oh. uh, great classes. But I'm curious, okay, so, so your thoughts on transhumanism and AI in general, and the religion of that that seems to have emerged you know it's not so much in the news lately and maybe that's because uh as extreme as that sounds it's it's really been taken up by the mainstream thrust of the technological development you know the whole ensemble of it is um i mean there are differences that's for sure but i mean it's um uh, it's Transhumanism is really the logic of the larger movement. Just as I would say that primitivism is the logic of the alternative. You know, that's, it, it really uh, comes down to that. I think you're right, though. People are feeling less and less agency all the time. People are getting to be more de-skilled by the movement of technology and AI in particular now. The metaverse is coming on and it's trying to take over all kinds of capacities and even defining dimensions of life. You know, it's just, it's been coming down the road 
for a while, but now Meta or Facebook, as it used to be called, is is trying. Uh, it's not clear whether it'll succeed anytime soon, but this whole metaverse project is is really the transhumanist thing. I mean, it's that's just uh, another piece of it, I would say. And uh, but you know, people just feel swept along by it because we are being swept along by it, and uh, it doesn't become a matter of politics. Who's discussing these things? You know, Trump versus uh, Biden or whatever. It never comes up. That's not that's not respectable, acceptable uh, discourse, is it? I mean, that's you know, who brings that up? So, uh, in the absence of that, uh, of course, people would feel just swept along by the tide. They don't like it. They don't like any institutions. They don't trust them. And uh, <clears throat> but you know, until we get to a deeper level of discourse, you know, what's being put on the table. I mean, uh, nothing much so far. I mean, I see some signs of it. Uh, I mean, the fact that I have a weekly radio show, I now have a column with the weekly, the Eugene weekly, the, the sort of alternative countywide, uh, you know, pretty much every small city or, or big city has that. That's a, that's a nice change. I, I've, I'm still sort of pinching myself that they want me to write a column for that. Uh, very liberal. This is a white liberal college town. Exactly the metaphor. Like a minor Austin, one might say, I don't know. But, uh, you know, that's not uh, part of the uh, the deal. That's not part of liberals. Don't talk about that. So you, you see a you shift in, in that regard. I mean, it definitely but seems you know, that people are. Of, you mentioned. Uh-huh. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it definitely seems to me that people are just flailing around looking for any any angle or life preserver they can get, which is yeah. why I think a lot of these, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I think everyone would have to agree that the kind of liberal consensus is collapsing. So You know, that's the, you mentioned the right in passing, or maybe not in passing, but I've been attacked uh, times from uh, from the left for using Heidegger or even Spengler or you know uh, people on the right. I'm not a, I'm not on the right, but you, you know if you can't even if you can't even use the insights of people outside of the dominant paradigm, well, where are we then? I mean, I think the critique that Heidegger raised, of course, he. He was a Nazi. He became a Nazi. That's that's incredibly uh, absurd. But uh, but his comments on technology were, and he sort of tried to take it back later. But very radical, very very key. Absolutely. I want to come back to Spengler in particular in a second. But I I just wanted to. <laughs> it is the. I hope it is clear. Like I think of the. Like the kind of well-meaning middle-class bourgeois liberal consensus is so personified to me by for instance the opinion section of the guardian in the uk and it has just been become so obvious that it has nothing to offer and you mentioned i think a good i don't want to i don't know him and i don't know his work very well so this is not like a call out but you mentioned paul kingsnorth in this book and is it just a, a kind of an, a, a, such an example of this approach to me of people who are, you know, 
flirting with various ideas, pushing, he was pushing Dark Mountain, he was pushing the idea of ecology, but then just gives up and goes and converts to the Orthodox Church. And for him, it's just kind of, it just seems, I don't know, maybe that's, there's not a lot of skin in the game. Perhaps this is just like another thing to write an opinion column about. I I don't know. It's just, it, it seemed to me, what's the best way to put it? That approach, when I see that approach from people, it's almost like watching like a cooking show where people are running around sampling different cuisines and you know commenting on them and it's like it seems like the the position of this role in society is to determine what is good manners for the middle class and it's just it's just useless (laughs) so yeah there's a lot of surrender there are various cases of that you know look don't be stupid it's all over there's nothing you can do about it and you're you're a clown if you think otherwise if you see if you want to hold open the door for possibility somewhere along the line well that's just ridiculous you know you you know it can be very vociferous you you could if you hold out any hope uh anywhere down the line even you know conceivably uh people react i don't think king's north has done that but it's a clear case of wow just well you know uh, um the existential thing what's the difference between collecting stamps or joining the resistance it's all just a matter of personal choice pick pick a number you know pick whatever you want but yeah that's just uh that's the surrender that um i mean there's a reason for that kind of nihilism or arbitrary it doesn't make any difference what you do he's not being nasty about it but no. you know I, I think it's a very sad uh turn you know well i'm wondering if i i want to clarify this point if so for the audience you know paul kings north uh, is a writer in england and ran something called the dark mountain initiative in the uk which got a lot of traction for a while and i believe my understanding and again i don't know his work very well is that he came to the position that there is nothing we can do to turn around the environmental crisis we're all screwed and sustainability is a joke and then he just became a reactionary christian oh that okay nice um, I want to, I'm curious how you clearly distinguish your position from that, because it seems that you are also coming at this from the angle of th- there's not really any way of salvaging technological civilization and that you're coming at it from the, you know, the primitivist critique. So how would you differentiate your rejection of, you know, the Id- progress perhaps, let's say, how would you differentiate your rejection of that versus his? Well, I, I haven't surrendered at all. I mean, it's that's uh, that's not a choice to me. You've got to uh, try to do something about it. And if you think the uh, response, the Luddite response, the anti-civil response, uh, is unthinkable or not, it's not going to happen. It's just simply not going to happen. Well. Um, some of us hold out hope that it can happen. It must happen. If there isn't a, as I say, a some somehow primitive future, there won't be a future. So what choice do we have? And as the dominant order shows itself to be <coughs> more and more in tatters and just a place of, uh, well, dis-ease. I mean, the whole thing is 
failed just in a spectacular way. And now it's a one global system, one civilization based on capital and technology and really nothing outside of it. Well, then it's all got to go. And that's serious. That's, that's just, to, to me, an unavoidable conclusion. So you do what you can to make that happen, to have the soft landing. I mean, we're, we're often accused, well, Chomsky, for example, says we're genocidists, not only genocidal, but we want billions of people to die. Well, that's craziness. He's, he's either really stupid, and he has been for a long time, but it's also just very, very dishonest. Nobody I know is talking about in effect, pulling the plug so that everybody will die. We're talking about a soft landing, if you will. We've got to reverse this process. We've got to go in a healthy direction that reclaims community, that, that respects the earth, that pays attention to the indigenous dimension, all these different things, none of which amount to surrender. But he's sticking to the left. He's just sticking yeah. to the corpse of the left, no matter how it's failed so, so, so immensely. Yeah, it seems like it, that's its job <laughs> in, in many ways, you know, like it's it works, you know, it's not a bug, it's a feature. Um, yeah, that that I think is a really interesting or a really critical point to make where you always hear that critique. I, I always hear it from the Fox News conservatives, but I suppose also from left liberals, the idea of, oh, you're talking about he's saying that people who are interested in ecology or green anarchism or going back to nature and want to genocide billions of people, which is that that's what you're saying. Right. And you're saying that's cartoonish. Yeah. 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 And I can't think of, you know, the only example I could think of that would be like somebody like Penty Linkola in, in, fin in Finland, who's, uh, you know, a, a fascist. He's a reactionary fascist, I believe. So, and well, he's now dead, but other than that, I don't see that. And so I think that's a really important, that's important to underline because you know, it's kind of like when people, well, I don't know. I, I just think that it's important to point that critique out and that it is wrong. Yeah, so, it's a choice. You know, you, what, if you want people talking about the value of work in their lives, what, what they're spending their time on earth at, well, I mean, to me, this is, it's the reverse of, of uh, quiescence. I mean, it's the most exciting thing you can do. It's just, a, a, you know, possibly uh, end up in defeat. But it's, I think it's a thrilling uh, thing to do, to, to tackle that, you know, to speak out against the, the denial, which so much uh, rules the uh, conversation in society. It's got to change, you know, and, and it can change. I think if people, if it somehow we were able to see uh, a discourse that, you know, puts the, puts serious questions on the table, basic questions as to what's driving all this, what's causing this, you know, it's then, then we might get somewhere. So you mentioned the idea of a global civilization and I really want to touch on that. So let's, I want to, this is where I want to segue back to Spengler. So you, you talk a lot about Oswald Spengler and that was interesting to me and I particularly love the idea of you mentioned that you see him as applying Goethe's plant morphology to civilizations, which was cool. Um, but you know, he is, as far as I understand the source of the idea that, you know, it's the death of Western civilization and the civilizations have natural life cycles and that this one is currently right. coming to an end. And, and you hear that a lot now, 
that's become pretty common currency, and I don't pe- think people have any understanding of where that came from. Um, it was picked up by Pat Buchanan in the 90s. He wrote The Death of the West oh. after Spengler, and then that became Donald Trump's Make America Great Again. He just templated his political platform from that. So it's interesting there's a direct line to Trump. But you, you hear this a lot. You hear this from you know, kind of ridiculous people like Jordan Peterson even. And so people mention this quite a lot. Um, but one thing that you point out in this book that I actually hadn't fully considered before is the idea that it's not like this death of quote, death of Western civilization. It's that we're in a global civilization and that this is perhaps the last civilization. Maybe this is all, all we have. And you actually call it a single global domestication machine at one point. And you basically say there is nowhere else to go. So, you know, we, we hear a lot about this idea that, well, oh, well, China's taking over. It's going to be the next empire, which I, you know, frankly, I have my doubts about. Um, but if instead, I think we can kind of consider the world as one civilization that is in the process of failure, that just undercuts so much of this, you know, we've seen this resurgence of nationalism and I, I just see it as, you know, people trying to push each other out of a sinking boat in the hope that their mm. their group mm. will somehow make it out um yeah. and so i'd like to hear your thoughts on that and you know I, I, and to touch on something i mentioned before you know we've seen the right also adopting a lot of the language of the anti-globalization movement but then proposing nationalism or, or even ethno-nationalism as a response to it, which is, a, you know, also ridiculous. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this idea that in, instead of this kind of petty nationalism, we are in, or even I think the mainstream left liberal idea that, you know, America is going to be replaced by a Chinese empire or something like that. That instead well, there are different, different flavors, I mean, different cultures, but there's, you know, one overarching civilization where domestication rules everywhere uh you know i remember the uh the ads coca-cola used to run they show somebody on the steps of asia with a can of coke and you could <laughs> already see you know decades uh, ago already how uh as pico Iyer, for example wrote about that everything gets uh sort of homogenized despite the political differences and so forth, um, you know, people wear the same clothes, the airports are identical everywhere on the planet and so on and so on. It's more and more the architecture is the same and uh, so forth. But, uh, you know, there's there's something underlying that. It's and, and there are important differences. There are important issues and uh, so on. But, I mean, I don't see how you can resist that you know, main picture that, uh, this is the thing and, uh, this is the Titanic and we can jockey the deck chairs around, but look where it's going <laughs> faster and faster too. And I'm, I'm not really a doomsayer, but man, it's, it's just scary. I mean, it's, yeah. And then people do flail around and they, what, uh, what alternatives are they given? You know, you can, spend all your time hating Trump or whatever, you know, that's, <laughs> and I hate Trump, of course, but I mean, yeah. but where does that get you? I mean, now we have the sideshow of these hearings about January 6th. Uh, there's a certain obsession with that. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's has no 
importance whatsoever. But meanwhile, uh, all of these fundamental things are just uh, showing us the, unmistakably how dire it all is and how and how connected it all is. You know, there's no there's no part of it. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if this has anything to do with the, your question there, but you know, a year before the um, person who did the Sandy Hook shootings, Adam Lanza, he called my radio show. Mm, Jesus. My cousin and I were co-hosting that night. Uh, and he made, he was talking about the uh, a chimpanzee that attacked its owner, also in Connecticut where he lived, and the savage attack. And he said, we're like that chimp. We're, we're, lead, we're leading these unnatural lives. I mean, the chimp was being fed human food and was dressed as a human and it flipped out anyway he said that's the that's where we're at we're like the chimp it's this is crazy and he sounded like a very sensitive high school kid and we both thanked him for the call hey that sounds like you got it man and and we went on it wasn't there wasn't much conversation and we were not arguing with each other you know then a year later he kills you know two dozen people children and so forth and then a year after that, it came out that that was who called and it became a big media thing for about a day. It was just nonstop uh, nonsense. And the question was, every time the question was, how did that make you feel to realize that that was Adam Lanza on, on your phone, on your show? That was, the, that was it. All day. That was the media. That was the, you know, the dominant thing. And I kept saying, what does that have to do with anything? Who cares what I felt about it? I mean, the real question is, was, was that valid? Are we not in that position? You know, I'm not sure as hell not upholding that mass murder that he did a year later. But come on, why be so trivial? This People magazine level of discourse? I mean, it's just, it's incredibly, how can you... Actually, Don Lemon on CNN, I think it is, he was the only one who entertained that question a little bit and a little bit off air even more. But I mean, he was the only one who wasn't terrified against asking something basic about that. Doesn't, isn't that, after all, time to, to just take a look at things? And now it's even worse. What was, then, your, what, you was know, was what was your answer? What was your answer? Well, but I don't want to talk about how I felt. What the fuck? Nobody knows who I am. Nobody cares who I am. Why not talk about the essentials? What the hell is going on with social existence? How have we gotten this far? And, of course, now it's worse. It was still not doing it very much. You know, it's just not much allowed. And that's tragic. But I think it can change. And I think I see more people who are, uh, you know, posing these same questions. I think there's a little bit of an anarchist revival or uh, renewal going on right now. It's too early to tell, but there is some signs of that. Like, you know, what happened 20 years ago with anti-globalization movement, which doesn't, which wasn't much anti-globalization, by the way, but now maybe there can be something like that that does have some depth, that does have some teeth. You know, back then, for example, the reporters at these big summit demos, you know, back in starting Seattle and all the others, 1999 to 2000, and then 
2011 put the end to it, but they always would ask the protester, so why are you against globalization? And the, the answer was almost uniformly, we're not against globalization, but we want a nice, kind, bottom-up kind of warm and fuzzy globalization. That's not anti-globalization. That's you want some reform that ain't going to happen. That's that's about it. You know, you that's missing the point. Anyway, it can be something much more serious the next round, and we'll find out. It seems like, yeah, the thing with Adam Lanza is I, I can, it's hard for me to think of a more heartbreaking example other than what just happened in Texas and events like that. Uh, you know, I know people who were first responders to that and uh, mm. that, that town from what I have heard has never recovered. It's just, you, you just, you just don't recover from something like that. Um, and so I'm very cautious about you know, no pun intended, globalizing things like that in the sense of, of, oh, what does this mean about us? What does this mean about society? Um, because I think that that somehow betrays the gravity of the actual action. And, you know, it's, it's hard for me to even think or talk about that event. But unfortunately, the problem now is yeah. that we have that event almost every day now. So, and that was already in process of happening when, when the Sandy Hook shooting, shooting occurred. And so the debate is obviously about gun control. Um, yesterday, Shinzo Abe was assassinated by somebody with a homemade gun. So, you know, it's not necessarily that, but that becomes, a talking point, you know, that becomes something to hang the, the rage and despair and, and, and sense of futility and trappedness on. And, and I think that's understandable. But if we are to ask that, if we're to ask a broader question, which is not about one individual person, but why, why are these school shootings happening all the time? You know, I, I don't yeah, know what your is. thoughts are on that, but. Well, I, don't see uh, how that's going to be reversed. Everything is uh, the grounds for that kind of hyper-alienation, uh, horrific stuff. That's not the only part of it. But And, you know, by the way, it's spreading. The mass shootings, the Abe shooting wasn't a mass shooting, but uh, what was the other one the other day? Just the other day, I can't think of it now, but... It, it's not just, it's a typically American thing, let's face it, but it's, I see it over the recent years, it's starting to spread to other places. Yeah, uh, definitely. You know, the, the obvious ones are um, Breivik and the New Zealand shooter, but um, so it seems to be a global thing and it seems to be less, I mean, it is very ideological in some cases, but otherwise it, it just seems to be just eruptions of insanity and one of the things that i've been asking we may maybe we can even ask this about the world but one of the things i've been asking about america specifically is at one point at what point do we have to gather all of this violence together and say that it is an ongoing conflict instead of isolated incidents <laughs> You know, we have, you know, even the Guardian a few days ago was, was saying, you know, it's not a question of if America goes into civil war, it's a question of when. 
which is rather irresponsible of them. I don't like the guardian, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, it, it, I, I was looking a few years ago at things like the troubles in Ireland and we think of that as a broad scale conflict, but you know, it's like even like the, the, there's so much more gun violence in America that it's like the troubles over and over and over and over again. Yeah. So my question is at what point do we maybe put all this together and say it is a guerrilla civil war and, and it, what are the sides? Are there sides? Is it just, a, is it a, a, not necessarily a civil war, but a civil suicide? Well, I think it's more the latter and, uh, it's not surprising that the liberals are inflating this uh, January 6th thing, for example. You know, talking about, they keep talking about democracy hanging by a thread, and next time it'll be even worse. And Well, I mean, it wasn't nothing, but it took months to organize that. It took millions of dollars to get these yahoos to do that, to go up, up to uh, Capitol buildings. But, I mean, after all, what, what if they had... Let's look at it this way. What if they had succeeded? What if they had succeeded in blocking uh, the the official, uh, you know, swearing in of Biden or something? You know what? Pretty much nothing. All the institutions of society are still there. Nothing's going to, I mean, this, what are they dreaming about? Do they have no notion at all about how society works? For example, is the military going to do nothing? Right. I mean, it's just, these these people, you know, in my opinion, they represent quite a, there's a, there's a level of resentment in this country, which is the key thing about the Trumpism thing. But yeah, that's nothing real new, but to make this such a big crisis, oh, we're definitely heading into civil war. I, I don't see that. I just don't see that. Mm. The problems are way deeper than this uh, right versus, and you know, there's the Antifa faction in the anarchist thing, right? Mm -hmm. They they like to up in Portland, for example, for a year or two. Every, you know, almost every night it just went on and on and on. Right. And they love to rumble against the right wing. You know, these pitiful knotheads, and and go to town. And on my radio show, I say more than once, "I got a baseball bat. I'll loan it to you, man. <laughs> I, got no, I got no problem with that. No problem at all." But if that's the limit of your perspective, really, you're just another liberal. I mean, you, that's the only thing to right. worry that's about. Right. That's an interesting point. It's just like a, you know, like a, just on the spectrum of Trump derangement syndrome. It's just like you're taking, it's just taking that one, one, one step further. I've, I haven't thought about that. That's really interesting. Um, huh. Well, yeah. I mean, I could be wrong. I could be just, you know, poo pooing the whole thing and, uh, it may be a little more serious than that, but I don't, I don't know if it is. With January 6th. Yeah, yeah, I haven't been following it that closely, but, you know, my, my perception, it's like, was there really any time at which, you know, the military could not have just been brought in to stop it? I mean, what are we really talking about here? Like, it's like I, I've referred to it as, you know, the comment section showing up like overflowing into reality. It's just like a, a few, like, you know, I think there were organized people in there, but it's like, what, like a guy dressed like a Viking, you know, like furries. It's just like ridiculous. Um, but of course, framing it in that way, in many ways, even when I was watching it, I, 
it occurred to me, you know, in a way, like this is the best thing that could have happened to the Biden administration. It allows them to, you know, say, well, look, there's the other side. It legitimizes them. It allows them to completely wipe the slate with Trumpism and and make a break with it. It shows that they're the responsible adults. So I, I think it was a gift to them in many ways. So, and I don't, I don't know. I mean, again, I don't know. I've been following that closely, but I, I really doubt that that ever was that much more than just like a, a rowdy tour group. <laughs> so, okay. One thing that I definitely want to touch, talk about and touch on is spirituality because this, we talk a lot about alternative approaches to spirituality on this podcast. It's kind of the topic of it. We, and, and you have a lot of thoughts about this. So the first thing that I'm really interested in is you talk about ecological anarchism's kind of flirtations with various spiritual paths in the seventies and how maybe outside of Taoism or Zen Buddhism, you felt they mostly missed the mark. So I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. And I think you, you basically just come out and say, if I'm paraphrasing you correctly, that the spiritual abstraction is basically part of the problem and that that nihilism and the kind of the whole spook of sustainability are part of the problem and that any ecological approach to spirituality, spirituality has to be rooted in total, direct, imminent perception of the world, which uh, I couldn't agree with more. So I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on that as a whole. Well, I think there's, it's been a nice development in some ways, you know, it's a very elusive term, uh, certainly spirituality. What is what does that mean? But I think among anarchists, there used to be <coughs> a real aversion, more of a 19th century materialist. Uh, I think of it as kind of a wooden knee-jerk atheism. Uh, I'm not a theist, by the way, but, you know, you just didn't, the spiritual thing just never entered the picture. And now I've found, uh, to my surprise, that some of the most militant, uh, ready-to-rumble black block friends of mine, deeply spiritual. Hmm. And now it's it's okay to kind of bring that out. And, uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of sources of certainly uh, the indigenous perspective in a lot of ways, both anthropologically, or that is prehistory-wise and present-day-wise. Thoreau, I mean, there's all sorts of sources. And I keep coming back to, uh, this was some years ago, at least 10 years ago, I was in Turkey, and at the end of the talk, there was a discussion period, and a young woman said, you know, I think at base, this green anarchy, this primitivist thing, is a spiritual movement. And I was just what you know come again you know and i really wanted to know what she meant by that what that meant to her but she had to catch a bus to get to her home and i didn't get to talk to her uh, only for a minute and but i've been thinking about that ever since i mean that was she put it right on the table and actually i do think there's a very and the postmodernist uh people i know attack this vehemently and Another perspective I'm thinking about is that what we're talking about is intimacy with the natural world, um, a direct connection, um, a, a wholeness that's only present before, as, as really as Rousseau said, 
before you get all these institutions that corrupt people and splinter them, uh, which post-modern doesn't seem to celebrate, actually. That's, that's, you could say that's a, that's a spiritual place. That's a spiritual goal. That's what it's about, you know, in its most basic terms, in terms of what kind of world do you want? What kind of existence is desirous or at least conceivably possible or once obtained? And that's been a big part of my uh, odyssey, if you will, my chance discovery of, of, Anthropology in the 80s, I was more of a Frankfurt School uh, character, influenced by the Situationists as well, quite a lot. And, and I just bumped into the, the literature. Um, Solins, Richard B. Lee, all these people that just gave a whole new uh, paradigm of what prehistory was like, was what, what species, human species were like before domestication. It just really did blow my mind. It, it, it was such a radical thing. It just put me on a different, uh, I mean, I was, I was somewhat in that direction from uh, dialectic of enlightenment, Adorno and Horkheimer, for example, and even Freud, uh, civilization and its discontents, you know, stuff like that. But this really did, for me, uh, provide a sort of foundation for it. People did live that way. So you know, can you, can you touch on that? Can you maybe summarize that for people who are not aware of what, what was the worldview that you gleaned when you were reading this anthropological stuff of what, what was life like prior to industrialization? Yeah. And, you know, you don't want to romanticize it. And you also have to realize that we don't have the full evidence. We don't know what consciousness was like. We don't even know what it's like now in a lot of ways. But, you know, before hierarchy, before destroying the planet, before slavery and you know all these things that now are uh, you know just come with civilization and they people depend upon them uh, people are ruled by them all the patriarchy right on up it's just it's just of a piece and there you have it and and there you see time after time they collapse the civilizations run their course you don't have to be a spanglerite to see that but uh and you begin to wonder, um, why is that? Is there a different way? And, and you know, 99% of our time as a human species, or various human species, was outside of domestication. We took what nature gave. And with domestication, you you engineer nature, you dominate nature, you, you know, you, you take over. And, uh, I mean, that's just the clear path that there it is. And, the only objection, the fundamental objection is, okay, that's all true, that's fine and dandy and everything, but so what? You might as well, as some, somebody in uh, Greece I remember saying, you might as well argue against the sun coming up. <laughs> you can't do nothing about that. Well, what if you can? Maybe we should try. It, it did, it really was a pretty workable, you know, when, when we lived in band society, when we had face-to-face -face community, which I would argue is the only actual community. Yeah. It isn't community anymore if you can't be in direct, you know, communion with people in these small scale. That was what society was, small scale, decentralized. That's what I'd like to see, a radically decentralized world where people could go back to having community, you know, having some agency over their lives and, and the world. And uh, 
until it was messed up. That's very, very recent, really, in terms of, you know, first human species three million years ago. Domestication is only about 10,000 years old. Mm. That's a blink of an eye. So, you know, you begin to suggest in more, somewhat more practical terms, this isn't just some nutty anarchist dreaming up stuff. There's, there's an actual prehistory that you can look at. And, uh, Am I picking up correctly that you use, you use the word domestication interchangeably with civilization, that you replaced one with the other? Well, pretty much. That's pretty great. much. You can't have civilization without it. And, you know, I, if I could just stick this in there for a second, this, is just, mm-hmm. this just happened in Dublin. Every other year, there's an international gathering of scholars. It's called CHAGS, which stands for uh, Conference on Hunter-Gatherer Studies. And a friend of mine was there and gave uh, two papers, actually. And I'm having him on the radio show in two weeks. He said, the most incredible thing happens. They, they used to be people like Marshall Salins. Sometimes they get these questions. You sound like these primitivist anarchists. Are, are you an anarchist? And, and they're, they're, but they're academics. They don't, oh, no, no, I'm a, I'm a professor. You know, they, they didn't really want to go there. Well, apparently, that's kind of changed. My, my friend, uh, James, gave a very, very uh, upfront, uh, radical, primitivist point of view. He's also, you know, he knows his stuff. He knows the literature, he knows the evidence and so on. But, uh, and Richard B. Lee, who's the dean of all that, he's this sort of legend in the field of anthropology, as you may know, just, just got up and applauded. <laughs> Interesting. This is what we need. This is what we got to have. It's time to to pull together here we're not just academics i mean i don't have the details but he said it was it was really astounding so maybe something is starting to happen interesting and i would imagine that the pandemic has perhaps accelerated that could be yeah so i also in in terms of spirituality also the flip side of that you i definitely want to get in here you talk about the decadent period in Victorian England and the kind of mass obsession that people had with drugs and with the occult and ultimately even with psychoanalysis. And you, you talk of these, you basically say these are escape hatches from the pressures of industrialization. It, it's just a dodge. Um, and that I want to touch on. I mean, we talk a lot about esotericism on this podcast, but you know, even I can't deny that like, uh, you know, in a sense, it's kind of a, measuring stick of the progress of alienation you know it's like it's it's a side effect of of industrialization of people trying to escape to something else um and i think you even said i think you're quoting somebody in the book i can't remember who you're quoting or or it's you said it that as the individual maybe you said it in as the individual is diminished in civilization religion advances in inverse proportion and you also say that you know even art is just a consolation prize for the loss of the natural world and that philosophy is anti-life and is a process of disassociation from the body. And I, I frankly, I can't really disagree with any of that. Um, but it was pretty clear to me that you weren't, you were talking about the modern period actually by way of talking about the decadent period in, in England. And so I'm Mm -hmm. curious what you, your, your thoughts about the parallels there, what you see happening now and just the kind of talking about this idea of people using escape routes to just avoid 
their own alienation to avoid the, the severity of the situation because that's really important well as you say it, the uh, the industrial cancer had conquered everything and if you look at the radical history you don't find much uh opposition william morris stood out as uh you know as a radical his news from nowhere is one of my favorite books imagining a utopian future where industrialism goes away you know it's but uh there wasn't very much of that unfortunately for the anarchist tradition to uh to you know make use of uh i think that that you know as you put it well uh you do have these these side routes what what's on offer i mean what 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 else are you going to do i mean that's you know that was uh actually totally in the saddle by then by the you know end of the century uh especially in england where it started i mean the whole industrial thing and so you know that's that's where it's at today too i mean it doesn't look good i'm not uh trying to certainly not depicting a rosy present but uh so it's not surprising and of course conspiracy theory mm. jumps out as one of the most remarkable crazy deals you know the most preposterous stuff i mean and that isn't anything new but you can see now uh as things get worse you you can see the crazier responses um and you know that takes all forms as civilization is a, is a gigantic force field that i think affects everything it affects mm. each of us you know the toll on friendships the toll and you know in every way it's just um and i've had a falling out uh, about vaccines i don't know what you think about that stuff but it, you know i i was just very surprised at the ferocious attacks i was getting uh, two years ago or you know when the pandemic started because i wasn't anti-vax you know i have oh, because you, you weren't anti-vax that's interesting no i i have a problem with lots and lots of people suffering and dying who, who were you who are you getting attacked by over that other anarchists other green anarchists huh. that's wouldn't have been too surprised if you know various people that's surprising people yeah it was very shocking to me very you know, and the point of view, um, I'd been in Italy not too long ago and a close friend of mine just really just erupted. Uh, what kind of anarchist are you? you? You're a turncoat, you're a traitor, you know. Uh, in other words, seeing these vaccines as a way to, it really is conspiracy thinking uh, motif. It's just a plot to control people. I mean, uh, I have a, tr a lot of trouble seeing that. I mean, yeah, I mean, big pharma. Okay, I'm, I've, I know something about that. I'm not, I don't trust th that stuff uh, fully in any respect. But you know, uh, it just seemed a little far fetched, and the just the vehemence of uh, you know, just nasty personal attacks over that. I, I was. I just was taken aback and uh, that's died down. I don't know. Maybe some of those people have changed their minds. I don't know. I'm not that's even interesting. In touch with I did see that anymore. Paul Kingsnorth came out and became an anti-vaxxer and 
uh, I was looking at, he's, he's very against it. And I, I was looking at the comments on articles about it and people were, you know, the, the level of vitriol on that issue. I mean, people were, you know, yeah. I think there were, there were basically like one or two people that showed up. Basically people were agreeing with them and there were like one or two people showing up in the comments, making reasoned arguments about like, about, you know, it's like, look, this is the right thing to do. And people were just, you know, mobbing them and, and it's, yeah. you know, it's like rage mob against people who are pro vaccine, which is b- bizarre because it's the, the opposite side in, in quote unquote, the mainstream world. It's the opposite, you know, anti, anti-vaxxers are so violently attacked. So, uh, that was, that, that's really interesting to me that you were, you were seeing it from the other end. I am not conspiratorial about it. Um, I am not, I suppose, an anti-vaxxer, although you, you, you have to, I, it's hard to get away from the fact that there is a, an, an angle of it, not a conspiratorial angle, but there, there, there is just a symbolic level to it of just being colonized in a sense because of the nature of the mRNA vaccine. It's like you're, you're being, your genetics are being colonized by, by corporations and that, that is outside of the science of it, I think. But there is an there is an angle of it that is uncomfortable, and that's essentially yeah. how I feel about it. So, uh-huh. yeah, but it's hard to have a, a you know a reasoned discussion when it starts out as just this vicious attack, and uh, I mean, there you know, it, there's all kinds of uh, levels of that. I ran into a woman I only know slightly at the post office, and. Uh, Anyway, make a long story short, she said, no one has died from COVID. (laughs) Okay. I'm not saying that all these people would agree with that, but Uh, you know, that's uh, okay. I just walked away. Like you're just, you got shit for brains. You, you, yeah. What? That, that, that is that is ridiculous i actually just looked at the covid dashboard yesterday and i think the global death toll that we know of is now up to six and a half million people and that's precluding like over a hundred thousand plus i think it's a lot more than that it is an unbelievable number who have had it and we now as we now know about long covid and i don't know if you've interacted with people who clearly have long covid it's scary like we're not just yeah. talking about dying we're talking about permanent neurological damage or lung damage or heart damage and it's just yeah you know but oh i guess i guess no one's died of it we should just pretend it's not happening (laughs) well that that in its own way is a flight into a fantasy world and i think that i don't want to totally conflate that with trumpism and i think that people make that mistake because this is a you know people have many different takes on this from different political sides obviously paul king's north is an example but um it, Trumpism itself just represents a flight into fantasy. Just it, it just choosing to live in a fantasy world, and rather than face the reality of of you know global warming or or colla- industrial collapse or the you know the in <laughs> the inherent uh, uh, you know just the, the inherent unworkableness of so much right now. Um, but I would imagine that that flight into fantasy has really been encouraged by lockdown in the pandemic because it is and i have to check this tendency in myself as well it is so easy to when we are completely taken out of community as you mentioned uh to end up thinking uh things that aren't true and exaggerating things and 
working yourself into a worldview that it has no bearing even potentially on the, the real world. And so that's really scary for society. And in a lot of ways, I think that, you know, this is obviously a metaphorical statement. It is not a medical statement, but in a, in a lot of ways that social distancing and COVID phenomenon is a, a, a exaggerated symptomology of what was happening already. Now, I'm not saying that it's not a disease, obviously, but just in the sense that the general trend of society has been isolation. And prior to COVID, everyone was already socially isolated by they were just on their phones in their own reality, chasing their own algorithmic tunnel. And COVID is like the ultra acceleration of that. And it is the acceleration away from what you were talking about, which is people just being a normal face-to-face community without which I think we, we just are insane. We're, we're lost. So I'm, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, it was coming. It was already developing that way for sure. Yeah. And, and there's a level of it too, where, you know, in the quote unquote first world, uh, we, we are even, even people who are facing COVID, we are sheltered so much from the, the, reality of it the economic knock-on effects the you know uh, i mean you, you mentioned you know even at the beginning of the pandemic people are afraid of running out of toilet paper well it's like this is how most people in the world live you know it's like to- toilet paper is such a bizarre thing in a way in the, in the grand scheme yeah. of things and and you also mentioned like if everyone used it well we global deforestation would be complete so you know um i don't know i i, I feel like some people hoped maybe that even at the beginning of the shutdown that maybe it would give the environment a little bit of a break at the time I lived in Los Angeles and the air had never been cleaner, but then, yeah. then it came back and it was worse than ever before. And I don't know, I assume it's probably the same And I don't know why that is. Maybe people are just cutting corners now, but, um, you know, it, it has not slowed down environmental degradation and it, it has accelerated, you know, global mental health, uh, the global mental health crisis, or certainly the mental health crisis in America to, I think in, in ways that we don't even understand and we, we may not for a long time. I mean, school shootings is obviously was happening before, but it's, that's a symptomology of that type of isolation. And, and I don't think it's, you know, it was already accelerating before. I don't know if I would necessarily want to conflate those things, but, um, I guess, well, why don't we, why don't we, let's just wrap this up. Uh, why, why don't we wrap this up by just asking what, what comes next? I mean, it, it's hard to see, frankly, hopeful futures right now. So, you know, what, what comes, where are we, what comes next? What are things to think about as, you know, potential solutions? Well, I've seen here, uh, maybe this doesn't count for much, but some return of public gatherings. We uh, put on a thing uh, for a new anarchist book, uh, had a very nice turnout and a very robust discussion afterwards at a local tavern, the, the sort of the main hangout in the Whitaker neighborhood here in Eugene, which was the sort of center of the anarchist upsurge 20 years ago. Um, seeing a few more signs like that, uh, and it's been a while, not just COVID stopping it, but nothing much in the past 20 years. But, uh, you know, when you look back, I think the Unabomber case was interesting to me, instructive to see how many kids really already knew that stuff. That was very nice. It was a nice surprise to get that 
from well, especially the more punk, uh, you know, already oppositional culture kind of stuff, but um, fairly widespread. And then, and then when the uh, anti-globalization thing, there was a lot of energy there. There was a lot of uh, strong radical energy, and uh, I think maybe we're due for something like that. Again, one swallow doesn't make the summer, as they say, but, you know, it's, we're in a desperate place. And uh, I think more people want, uh, want to have actual physical encounters with each other. Now it's a little more possible. It's not quite so scary a thing, COVID-wise, you know, but uh, maybe this, maybe we're going to be seeing more and we need much more, as I've argued, and I think you agree. It's because it's not just the mass shootings that's easy to peg on because it's it really is awful. But opioid overdose deaths, you know, yeah, how suicide is among the young. I mean, these yeah. things are are just part of the of the how bad things are getting and how fast they're they're getting even worse. So people, I think people want some something different and a chance to uh to get together and try to see what we can come up with what do do others have the same questions and fears and so forth so we can start to maybe challenge it Hmm. yeah i was a senior in high school during the world the wto protests and that was so exciting at the time and um you never hear anyone talk about it anymore it's like, and, and one of the things that I, one of the things you mentioned in the book is that I thought was interesting and I hadn't considered it before was distinguishing that from Occupy and why they were different. And I'm, maybe if you want to touch on that, just, to, just as a, as a last bit, I think that that was, a, that's important to understand. Yeah, that, that was, uh, maybe a sort of aftershock, uh, Occupy around 2012, right? It it really it wasn't much. I don't really know any anarchists who were involved. Frankly, they they hoped it would be interesting, but uh, it really wasn't much. It just really had, for one thing, it had pretty much no analysis. David Graeber, you know, uh, yeah, and his book is this horrible dawn of everything. It's just we could get into that, but anyway. Uh, yeah, Occupy just, you know, at a certain point at the most militant site of Occupy, which was, which was Oakland, Occupy Oakland, there was actually a vote taken as to whether, I forget precisely how it was phrased, but, uh, what is the legacy? What is the, uh, kind of foundation of what we're, what we're all about? Is it the left? Or is it the indigenous, the ancestral, you know, that sort of stuff? And the vote was the left. Uh As always. Yeah. And, you know, it was, that was partly, partly it went that way because there was a, a very authoritarian bunch who had claimed the, you know, the native thing, they were, they owned it and they were kind of not very popular. So that, probably turned some votes against them, which missed the point. It wasn't about any this that this or that group. 
it was much deeper than that and they they blew it and you know they they blocked the port for a day and there was, a, there was quite a lot of stuff going on but uh it was quite weak it just didn't have much uh, going and uh like i said the there, there weren't any anarchists involved really i don't think of course people would say well who are you to define who's an anarchist and, okay okay i get it but <laughs> I don't think there was much radical stuff going on there at all. Yeah, I unfortunately have to agree. I, I was involved in Occupy and I was I was camped out for two weeks in at City Hall in Los oh. Angeles. But uh, it was kind of a whole lot of nothing, unfortunately, in the sense it was fun. It was exciting. It was it was a, a great outburst of energy, which I, I was inspired by for years. But I mean, essentially, it was. Uh, people could not get a cohesive platform. They could not agree on anyone. That's when the kind of privilege checking and you can't talk really started. There was a lot of just people shutting each other down and, and you know, which I, I in, at times suspect it may have had something to do with COINTELPRO, but, um, or maybe not. It's just, maybe that's just how people are, but it basically nobody could, nobody could come to a cohesive platform and then it just turned into people shooting up. Uh, in the mud, well, so you know, <laughs> you well, might. It was also to do with democracy. You know, speaking <laughs> of Seattle, WTO, you know, they had all these spokes councils and you know consensus sort of effort, like Occupy in a lot of ways. We weren't even allowed to take part in that. <laughs> oh, why is that? Use for that, you know. One a different perspective is autonomy. People do what they want. You you do this. Maybe I don't want to do that. I'll do this. And fine. You, you don't have to have a mass vote about it. That's just ridiculous. And that's why we were just, they didn't want to hear us. They didn't want to let us even be part of their democracy. And uh, it never even occurred to them that what kind of model is that? It, aren't, isn't this thing stronger when people are have agency, have choice? They can do what they want. And there were struggles, of course, in Seattle. The sort of peace police were <laughs> didn't want the anarchists from Eugene, so-called, to, you know, trash downtown. You know, the point of view, though, is you want to be with your peace sign or whatever, fine. But maybe we'll be doing something different. I don't know who that would be, but you know what I mean? It's uh, how about that? As the model, <laughs> nobody's going to agree 100% on everything. Why should they? Yeah. You know, totally different approach. Yeah, it's hard not to see that these days. I mean, it's like there's a certain level where democracy is a choosing your master, which is a it's just like a non starter to begin with, but is also, yeah. uh, uh, you know, it's like wh which person would you like to lead you to the slaughter? Uh, but is also, it's just like it's like it's consent to rule by the by the least apt you know, it's just like because it, it's by nature the biggest number of people voting win and the more people they are the dumber they're going to be unfortunately that's just, that's just the nature of humanity <laughs> and then you put them on the spot uh and i can recall occasions like that i uh you know taking taking a, a little problem with that so you're in love with mass society, huh? You like that? <laughs> well, you are. You know, why not cop to it? I hate it. It's it's the wrong way to live, and and uh, you're defending it. That's why we're at odds here. 
one of the reasons. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, I'm talking about fighting with leftist anarchists, you know, red anarchists or any other sure. version of leftist anarchists. They're fine with it. Chomsky wants more development. He wants more mass society. What on earth are you thinking? Yeah, I, I remember seeing a, a clip with him interviewed. Uh, and again, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I remember somebody was interviewing him about about the pandemic. And he was saying, I'm putting forgive me if I get this wrong, because I'm not, I don't have it right in front of me, but he was basically saying that anyone who does not get vaccinated should be locked out of society and starved. And it's just like, mm-hmm. Noam Chomsky, like, wait, wait what? <laughs> like, what, what? Like, how, how do you get to this position? Um, and I, I understand it's just, but I mean, like that, that is in, in a sense, the, the mainstream democratic party position. It has been, it's like, so, yeah to to that point all right well uh where can this was a really good conversation i really enjoyed it where can people find out more about you and also tell people about your new book and where they can get it oh thanks jason well it's called uh when we are human from feral house it's somewhat widely available i think it's done fairly okay i don't really know but and uh i do um Anarchy Radio every week at uh, kwvaradio.org Tuesday evenings it's recorded, it's archived you can find it at my website which is johnzerzen.net so yeah thanks for asking Jason alright great, well thank you again for being on the show that was a great and uh, provocative and, and disturbing conversation I, I bet people will enjoy it a lot okay, take care, thank you again Hope you really enjoyed that episode. Check out our new course at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. It's called Why Magic? Start Here. And it is a free 25-minute introductory session with me about what magic is, how to learn it, and why you should. Pro tip, because everything is going off the rails. And it's a really, really, really good way to get control back over your life. All right, go check it out. I will see you in class and I will see you next time.